0: I have found the key Honey, darling, you believe Lonesome roads we've seen But honey, darling, keep your eyes wide and see That we can join our hands take for hours all of this land, honey darling you understand if it's healing your heart I can
1: Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. Mercury is out in the backyard, mm-hmm. and this is uh, Around the World in 80 Movies.
2: <laughs> That's an awesome title, but no, that is not the name of this podcast. What's
1: the name of our podcast?
2: Armchair Apocrypha.
1: That's right. This is the mm-hmm. podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. How was your week? It
2: was good. Good. It was nice.
1: Yeah. You have been gone like every day this week.
2: So. I know. I feel like I've had something to do every <laughs> single fucking day. And it's true. I babysat last night, yeah. which I've not done in New Year's. Uh, did you finish
1: the rest of Snowpiercer?
2: No, no. I just rewatched Dairy Girls and I watched a stand up special. Hmm. Um, I don't even remember what I did. Oh, yeah. And then my friend had a birthday party the night before. Yeah. And, man, Jesus.
1: You've been busy. I have. I have not. <laughs>
2: That's good. It's been nice and relaxing. <laughs> How's your week been? It's been okay. Okay. Um, oh, I know you had a long week at work.
1: Yeah. Uh, Code Louisville. Did we talk about this last episode? Or Mm-mm. Okay. Uh, so Code Louisville used to be a, a grant program, uh, and so the government was paying for every student to go, mm-hmm. um, and it was free for every student, and now it's not. Um, so JCTC uh, folded it into the college system, so now it's a college program. Gotcha. So we had, like... I don't want to, I, more than a hundred students. We had more than a hundred students in like four days Whew. and it was a lot. Yeah. Um, but I've been just relaxing, trying not to let it get to you. Trying not to let it get too stressful. Um, I got a raise this week, which was nice. Uh, we had our performance evaluations, which were nice. Mm-hmm. It's been pretty, pretty good, pretty good, good despite all the students. I understand. I also had a student that I'm pretty sure is cursed. Did I tell you about this one? No,
2: he did not. Okay,
1: so she um she came in. I want to say on Tuesday, and she just needed to do her V1 verification form, Mm -hmm. which is easy. It takes ten minutes to do. Okay. Usually, there's no problem. Uh, she can't remember her sign and password for her student self-service. So I'm like, that's no problem. We'll just reset it. we got to reset it. She has the answers to all of her questions, but they're not working for some reason. So I'm like, this one is wrong. And she's showing me on her phone, no, that's what I put in when I set up the account. Okay. Like, I don't I don't I don't know what's going on. So we call uh, we call the, the tech support over at JCTC. They send a temporary password to her email, but she never gets the temporary password. She gets every email relating to it. We just but sent you a temporary, temporary password. password. Uh, please take our survey telling us how we did. But she never got the temporary password.
2: She so, should complete that survey.
1: <laughs> eventually we get the um, the temporary password. We go to sign in and the entire website goes down.
2: Oh my God.
1: So we can't log into it. We can't change anything. We can't do anything. I'm like, you're gonna have to come back later in the week. She's like, I can't, I work five days a week. I'm like, you're gonna have to figure out something. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, So she came back in on Friday and we were able to do everything. She was in and out in 10 minutes. Oh, good. And then I went to go and update her file in our system, and our system went down.
2: Oh, you've got to be kidding me. So
1: I'm pretty sure that she's cursed. She is
2: cursed. You should let her know. She
1: needs to stay away from databases. (laughs) Just don't do anything with computers. She'll be fine. Yeah. But yeah.
0: That was just one
2: story of one of your students. (laughs) Jeez Louise. Yeah. We'll drink to that on Sunday afternoon. Cheers. Cheers. And sip. It's refreshing.
1: Uh, do you want to get into the? Do you yes. want to get into today's episode? Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever heard of Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin? No. Okay.
2: I don't like the last name though.
1: Cecilia Helena Payne Gaposchkin was a British-born American astronomer and astrophysicist. Nice. Astrophysicist who proposed, in her 1925 doctoral thesis, that stars were composed primarily of hydrogen and helium. Mm. She was the first one to propose this. Her groundbreaking conclusion was initially rejected because it contradicted the scientific wisdom of the time, which held that there were no significant elemental differences between the sun and the earth.
2: Shut up.
1: Uh, she was one of three children born in Wendover, England to Emma Leonora Helena and Edward John Payne, a London barrister, historian, and accomplished musician. Her mother came from a Prussian family and had two distinguished uncles, historian George Heinrich Pertz and the Swedenborgian writer James John Garth Wilkinson. Cecilia Payne's father died when she was four years old, forcing her mother to raise the family on her own. Payne attended St. Paul's Girls' School. In 1919, she won a scholarship to Newnham uh, College, Cambridge University, where she read botany, physics, and chemistry. Her interest in astronomy began after attending a lecture by Arthur Eddington in 1919 uh, on a blah. <laughs> by Arthur Eddington on his 1919 expedition to the island of Principe in the Gulf of Guinea off the west coast of Africa to observe and photograph the stars near a solar eclipse as a test of Einstein's general theory of relativity. She said of the lecture, the result was a complete transformation of my world picture. My world has been so shaken that I experienced something very like a nervous breakdown.
2: I can relate to that.
1: Uh, She completed her studies, but was not awarded a degree because of her gender.
2: I was waiting for that to come up.
1: Cambridge did not grant degrees to women until 1948. Payne realized that her only career option in the UK was to become a teacher, so she looked for grants that would enable her to move to the United States. After being introduced to Harlow Shapley, the director of the Harvard College Observatory, where he had just established a graduate program in astronomy, she left England in 1923. This was made possible fi- by a fellowship to encourage women to study at the observatory. Adelaide Ames had become the first student on the fellowship in 1922.
2: Payne was the second. Whoa, cool
1: shapley persuaded Payne to write a doctoral dissertation and so in 1925 she became the first person to earn a phd in astronomy from radcliffe college now part of harvard Oh, okay her thesis was stellar atmospheres a contribution to the observational study of high temperature and the reversing layers of stars
2: i would like to even try and read it <laughs> and see if i can even understand like a paragraph
1: it's probably out there somewhere.
2: oh i know it is i could probably go to the library
1: uh, Paine was able to accurately relate the spectral classes of stars to their actual temperatures by applying the ionization theory developed by Indian physicist Magnad Saha. She showed that the great variation in stellar absorption lines was due to uh, differing amounts of ionization at different temperatures, not to different amounts of elements. She found that silicon carbon and other common metals seen in the sun spectrum were present in about the same relative amounts as on Earth in agreement with the accepted belief of the time, which held that the stars had approximately the same elemental composition of the earth. However, she found that helium and particular hydrogen were vastly more abundant uh, for hydrogen by a factor of about 1 million. Uh, Her thesis concluded that hydrogen was the overwhelming constituent of the stars, Mm. making it the most abundant element in the universe. However, when Payne's dissertation was reviewed, astronomer Henry Norris Russell-
2: I bet he's a dick.
1: Uh, who stood by the theories of American physicist Henry Rowland dissuaded her from concluding that the composition of the sun was predominantly hydrogen because it would contradict the current scientific consensus oh my that gosh. the elemental composition of what the, the sun and the earth were similar, sorry. which is great science. Yeah. You um, can't change
2: what we've already said. The earth is flat. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry.
1: Payne, following this review, uh, described her results as spurious. Um, And then a few years later, after astronomer Otto Struve described her work as the most brilliant PhD thesis ever written in astronomy. Love it. Uh, Russell also realized she was correct when he derived the same results by different means. In 1929, he published the findings in a paper that admiringly acknowledged Payne's work and Discovery. Nevertheless, he is often credited for the conclusions that she reached.
2: Motherfucker.
1: After her doctorate, Payne studied stars of high luminosity in order to understand the structure of the Milky Way. Later, she surveyed all stars brighter than the 10th magnitude. She then studied variable stars, making over 1,250,000 observations with her assistance. The work later was extended to the uh, Magellanic Clouds, adding a further 2 million observations of variable stars. These data were used to determine the path of stellar evolution. She published her conclusions in her second book, Stars of High Luminosity." Her observations and analysis of variable stars carried out with her husband, Sergei Kaposhkin, laid the basis for all subsequent work on such, such objects. <laughs> Payne Gaposhkin remained sci- scientifically active throughout her life, spending her entire academic career at Harvard. When she began, women were barred from becoming professors at Harvard, so she spent years doing less prestigious, low-paid research jobs. Nevertheless, her work resulted in several published books, including The Stars of High Luminosity, Variable Stars, and Variable Stars in the Galactic Structure, which sounds like a great sequel. It does. Uh, Shapley had made efforts to improve her position, and in 1938 she was given the title of astronomer. Cool. The first woman astronomer. On Payne's request, her title was later changed to Phillips Astronomer. She was elected a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts Arts and Sciences in 1943. Her courses were not recorded in the Harvard University catalog until 1945. So she taught whatever she wanted for two
2: years. Love it.
1: I'm sure it was good.
2: I bet it was.
1: Uh, When Donald Menzel became the director of Harvard College Observatory in 1954, he tried to improve her appointment. And in 1956, she became the first woman to be promoted to full professor from within the faculty at Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Later, with her appointment to the chair of the Department of Astronomy, she also became the first woman to head head a department at Harvard. Um, Her students included Helen Sawyer Hogg, joseph ashbrook frank drake harlan smith and paul w hodge all of whom made important contributions to astronomy she also supervised frank Kameny, who became a prominent advocate of gay rights cool payne Gaposchkin retired from active teaching in 1966 and was subsequently appointed emeritus professor of harvard she continued her research as a member of the staff at the smithsonian astrophysical observatory as well as editing the journals and books published by Harvard Observatory for 20 years.
2: If only I have a job for that long. <laughs> that is Cheers. some
1: great job security.
2: <laughs>
1: you don't want to spill on your laptop? Yeah,
2: thank you. That's all right. It's gone through enough. <laughs>
1: it's
2: towards the end of its life. That's okay. That's awesome. Thank you. I love that you did a lady, because I did not do a lady or a person. <laughs>
1: What did you do
2: today? I'm gonna to talk as briefly as I can about the Library of Alexandria oh, and the nice. Great Wonders of the World. Yeah, until um, it burned. Huh? Until it burned. Until it burned, but actually, that's um, it did burn. There's times. Of, yeah, things. And when I was watching the, the cool history thing today, it also said like earthquakes didn't help. Oh no, that was with the lighthouse. The lighthouse is the, the reason that demolished was because of uh, earthquake. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to talk about kind of like the mythology of it, okay. the theories about it, and this would be a great drinking game because I'm going <clears> to <throat> mispronounce everyone's name Every time, <laughs> every
1: time Rachel mispronounces someone's name, they
2: would be, they're going to be passed out before I even finish. Go ahead and take a drink take a drink. Yeah. Good luck with that one, Andrew. I'm not doing it. <laughs> but okay. So the great library of Alexandria in Alexandria, Egypt was one of the largest and most significant libraries of the ancient world. The library was part of a larger re- research institution called the Moseon, which was dedicated to the Muses, the mm-hmm. nine goddesses of the arts, right. which I think is pretty cool. The idea of a universal library in Alexandria may have been proposed by Demetrius of Thalerim, an exiled um, Athenian statesman living in Alexandria at the time. Um, but the library itself was probably not built until the reign of his son. What do you say all the time? How do you pronounce that?
1: Which one? Uh, Ptolemy. Yeah.
2: Ptolemy, right? You just leave the yeah. key off. Ptolemy II. Um, the library quickly acquired a large number of papyrus scrolls. Papyrus. Papyrus. Yeah. Papyrus scrolls due largely to Ptolemy's king's aggressive and well-funded policies for procuring texts. That's what it was all about.
1: Nice.
2: It is unknown precisely how many such scrolls were housed at any given time, but estimates range from 40,000 to 400,000 at its height um and then also alexandria came to be regarded as the capital of knowledge and learning in part because of this great library Mm -hmm. which is how we all kind of associated it
1: did they talk about what uh how he came upon new scrolls
2: um i will get into that later i believe i'm giving like a brief overview and then go into a little more details but i skip a lot because they have like head librarians and i don't even i only mention (laughs) about the third one because it's interesting I mean, they were all actually interesting is the problem. I just don't want to talk for two hours. <laughs> um, no one uh, wants to hear me talk for two <laughs> hours either. <laughs> Many important, influential scholars worked at the library during the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C., including, among others, Zenodias of Ephesus, take a drink, who worked towards standardizing the text of um, the poems. Callimachus, who wrote Pinox. Sometimes considered the world's first library catalog. I'm just going
1: to consider this paragraph. Yes.
2: <laughs> Coloneus of Rhodes, which I think I pronounced that right. I think you did. Who composed of the epic poem Argonautica. mm mm-hmm. of Cyrene, who calculated the circumference of the earth within a few hundred kilometers of accuracy.
1: Nice.
2: Aristophanes of Byzantium, who invented the system of Greek diacritics and was the first to divide the poetic text into lines. What is it? that one. Diacritics? Diacritics, yeah. Okay. And Aristarchus uh, (coughs) of Samothrace, who produced definitive (laughs) texts of um, poems as well as extensive commentaries on them. Okay. During the reign of Ptolemy II, um, Eurigrates, a daughter library, was established in the Serapium, a temple to the Greco-Egyptian god Serapis. The library... It was of uh, Alexandria was not actually the first library of its kind. A long tradition of libraries existed in both Greece and in the ancient Near East. The earliest recorded archive of written materials comes from the ancient Sumerian city-state Uruk in 3400 BC, when writing had only just begun to develop.
1: Okay.
2: Scholarly curation of literary texts began in around 2500 BC. Um, the later kingdoms and empires of the ancient Near East had long traditions of book collecting. The ancient Hittites and Assyrians had massive archives containing records written in many different languages. Mm-hmm. The most famous library of the ancient Near East was the Library of Ashurbanipal. Ashur, yeah, Ashur, Asher-Banap- yeah. I don't know. In Nineveh, founded in the seventh century B.C. by the Assyrian king. Um, a large library also exists in Babylon during Nebuchadnezzar II's mm-hmm. time. And in Greece, the Athenian tyrant Pisistratus was said to have founded the first major public library in the 6th century BCE. Okay. It was out of this mixed heritage of both Greek and Near Eastern book collections that the idea for a library of Alexandria was actually born. But the library was one of the largest and most significant of the ancient world. Um, but details about it are... Uh, about it are a mixture of history and legend hashtag armchair
1: hashtag
2: armchair yes oh i lost my spot um the earliest novi- no- known surviving source of information of the founding in the library is in the letter of Aristides, which was composed between 180 and 145 bc the letter of Aristides <laughs> claims that the library was founded during the reign of um ptolemy the mm-hmm. first which was 323 to 283 bc okay <coughs> we don't need to talk about that the exact layout of the library is not known but ancient sources describe the library of Alexandria as com- comprising a collection of scrolls, Greek columns um, a room shared for dining, a reading room, meeting rooms gardens and lecture halls creating a model for the modern university campus cool, a hall contained shelves of the collections of papyrus scrolls known as bibliotheca, ha. <laughs> Um, according to popular description and in an inscription above the shelves read, the place of the cure of the soul, which I think is fucking cool.
1: It didn't read Donde Star la Biblioteca. No, they okay.
2: did not say that. <laughs> according to the Greek medical writer Galen, under the decree of Ptolemy the second, any books found on ships that came into port were taken to the library where they were copied by official scribes. The mm-hmm. original texts were kept in the library and the copies delivered to the owners. Is this what you were thinking of? That's what I was thinking of. I always love that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Excuse me, we need those. We'll return our copy later. The copy. Uh, The library particularly focused on acquiring manuscripts of um, Homer's poems, which Mm -hmm. were the foundation of Greek education and revered above all other poems. Right. The library therefore acquired many different manuscripts of these poems, tagging each copy with a label to indicate where it had come from, which I think is pretty cool. In addition to collecting works from the past the museum which housed the library also served as home to a host of international scholars poets philosophers and researchers who according to the first century bc greek geographer strabo that's an awesome name (laughs) were provided with a large salary free food and lodging and exemption from taxes sign me up (laughs) they had a large circular dining hall with high domed ceiling in which they ate meals communally There are also numerous classrooms where the scholars were expected to at least occasionally teach students. Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, is said to have a keen interest in zoology, so it has been speculated that the Moseon may have even had a zoo for exotic animals. Nice. (laughs) Kind of cool. According to classical scholar Lionel Casson, the idea was that if the scholars were completely freed from all the burdens of everyday life, they would be able to devote more time to research and intellectual pursuits. Strabo called the group of scholars who lived at the museum a—I can't pronounce the word—and it's not even in like English, but it means community. Yeah,
1: uh, sina, uh, I think it's that synedos. Synedos. Yeah. yeah. Synedos.
2: As early as 283 BC, they have—they um, may have n- numbered between 30 and 50 men. Uh, the Library of Alexandria was not affiliated with any particular philosophical school, and consequently, scholars who studied there had considerable academic freedom. Nice. They were, however, subject to the authority of the king. A probably apocryphal story <laughs> is told of a poet named Sotatis, who wrote an obscene epigram, making fun of Ptolemy II for marrying his sister, the II, or not no. Arsenal <laughs> arsinoe arsinoe
1: hashtag armchair apocrypha
2: the yeah. second is said to have jailed him and after he escaped sealed him in a lead jar and dropped him into the sea hashtag Oof. armchair
1: apocryphal. that'll
2: hurt yeah well as a religious center the muse the museum was directed by a priest of the muses known as epistats who was appointed by the king in the same manner as the priest who managed the various egyptian temples The library itself was directed by a scholar who served as head librarian as well as a tutor to the king's son. So they talk about the first two, but I'm going to talk about the third head librarian. uh, (laughs) Eratosthenes
1: I don't think that's right. Eratosthenes?
2: Eratosthenes, that sounds way more accurate. Is best known today for his scientific works, but he was also a literary scholar. Eratosthenes' most important work was his uh treaties geographica which was originally in three volumes the work itself has not survived but many fragments of it are preserved through quotation and writings of the later geographer strabo okay aristastanese was the first scholar to apply mathematics to geography and map making yeah and in his treatise concerning the measurement of the earth he calculated the circumference of the earth and was only off by less than a few hundred kilometers which we kind of talked about earlier yeah aristastanese was also also produced a map of the entire known world which i really want to know what (laughs) the known world was at that time
1: probably not very big
2: yeah which incorporated information taken from sources held in the library including accounts of alexander the great's campaigns in india and reports written by members of ptolemaic's elephant hunting expeditions along the coast of east africa in 48 bc during caesar's civil war julius caesar was besieged at alexandria his soldiers set fire to his own ships while trying to clear the wharves to block the fleet belonging to Cleopatra's brother, Ptolemy XIV. The fire spread to the parts of the city nearest to the docks, causing considerable devastation. The first century AD Roman playwright and Stoic philosopher Seneca the Younger quotes mm-hmm. Lives abs urn Condita Libra, Libri, which was written between 63 and 14 BC. I'd say that the fire started by Caesar destroyed 40,000 scrolls from the Library of Alexandria. There you go.
1: Ouch. <sighs> it hurts. Yeah,
2: it does. The Greek middle Platonist Plutarch writes in his life of Caesar, writes in his, quote, life of Caesar, (laughs) that when the enemy endeavored to cut off his communication by sea, he was forced to divert that danger by setting fire to his own ships, which, after burning the docks, thence spread on and destroyed the great library. The Roman historian Cassius Dio, however, writes, many places were set on fire with the result that, along with other buildings the jockyard's, dockyards and storehouses of grain and books said to be great in number and of the finest were burned um scholars have interpreted cassius Dio's wording to indicate that the fire did not actually destroy the entire library itself but rather only a warehouse located near the docks being used by the library to house scrolls right whatever devastation caesar's fire may have caused the library was evidently not completely destroyed the geographer strabo mentions visiting the Mazi Mose- Uh, Museum. Museum. Yeah, Museum, the larger research institution to which the library is attached in around 20 BC, several decades after Caesar's fire, fire, indicating that it either survived the fire or was rebuilt soon afterwards. Nonetheless, Strabo's manner of talking about the Museum shows that it was nowhere near as prestigious as it had been a few centuries prior. Right. Tier. Despite mentioning. The Museum. Strabo does not mention the library separately, perhaps indicating that it had been so drastically reduced in stature and significance that Strabo felt it did not warrant separate mention. It is unclear what happened to the Museum after Strabo's mention of it. Furthermore, see how much more I have. Okay, not too much. Furthermore, or furthermore, further evidence. <laughs> furthermore, Plutarch records in his Life of Mark Antony that in the years leading up to the Battle. of Actium in 33 BC, Mark Antony was rumored to have given Cleopatra all 200,000 scrolls in the library of Pergamium. Plutarch himself notes that his source for this antidote was sometimes unreliable, and it's possible that the storm may be nothing more than propaganda intended to show that Mark Antony was loyal to Cleopatra in Egypt rather than to Rome. Hashtag, Hashtag Jinx. <laughs> Casson, however, argues that even though the story was made up, it would not have been believable unless the library still existed. Um, Edward J. Watts, a guy, <laughs> argues that Mark Antony's gift may have been intended to replenish the library's collection after the damage to it caused by Caesar's fire roughly a decade and a half prior. Further evidence for the library's survival after 48 BC comes from the fact that most notable producer... Of composite commentaries during the late first century BC and early AD was a scholar who worked in Alexandria named Didymus Calcantirius, whose epitaph means bronze guts.
1: Bronze guts.
2: Yes. Didymus is said to have produced somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 books, making him the most prolific known writer in all of antiquity. How can books... he write that? His, That's like L. Ron Howard with his books. L. Ron Hubbard. Howard. <laughs> Ron Howard, the great director. Ron <laughs> Howard. Uh,
1: his books were probably a lot shorter than the ones that I write. Oh, yeah. They're That's, probably short yeah,
2: stories. Yeah. <sighs> Remember their paragraphs. Remember, you've got
1: to write those on scrolls, yeah. so you don't have a whole lot of room.
2: You don't. you got to make it short and sweet. Yeah. Um, he was also given the nickname, am I going to say it, meaning Book Forgetter, because it was said that he, that even he could not remember all the books he had written. Yeah, if you wrote four thousand fucking yeah. books, how can you remember? A book I've,
1: I've only like published two, and I always forget stuff from yeah.
2: them. Um, I agree, like, I've written a book. Yeah, I totally agree. With <laughs> <laughs> Parts of some of Dionysus' commentaries have been preserved in the forms of later extracts, and these remains are modern scholars' most important sources of information about the critical works, of earlier scholars at the Library of Alexandria. Lionel Casson states that Dynamis' prodigious output would have been impossible without at least a good part of the resources of the library at his disposal at okay. that time. Despite the widespread modern belief that the library was burned once and cataclysmically destroyed, the library actually declined gradually over the course of several centuries, starting with the purging of intellectuals from Alexandria in 145 BCE during the reign of of Ptolemy VIII.
1: Hey, guys, uh, purging intellectuals doesn't work. Sorry. It worked here, clearly. It doesn't. They tried it in China, too. Yeah. It doesn't work.
2: So... Uh, during Ptolemy VIII, which resulted in Aristarchus of Samothrace, the head librarian, resigning from his position and exiling himself to Cyprus. I want to exile myself there. <laughs> Many other scholars, including Dionysus Thrax and Apollodorus of Athens, fled to other cities where they continued teaching and conducting scholarship. The library, or part of its collection, was accidentally burned by Julius Caesar during his civil war, mm-hmm. like we mentioned earlier, but it's unclear how much was actually destroyed it seems to have either survived or been rebuilt shortly after um, the library dwindled during the Roman period due to lack of funding and support its membership appears to have ceased by the 260s AD so between 270 and 275 AD the city of Alexandria saw a rebellion and an imperial counterattack counter attack that probably destroyed whatever remained of the library if it still existed at that time the daughter library of Serapium may have survived after the main library's destruction. The Serapium was vandalized and demolished, though, in 391 AD under a decree issued by the Coptic Christian Pope Theopolis of Alexandria. But it does not seem to have housed books at the time and was mainly used as a gathering place for new platonist philosophers following the teachings of. Plotinus? No, Implicus. Implicus. Lampelicus, <laughs> Take a drink. <laughs> In late antiquity, as the Roman Empire became Christianized, Christian libraries modeled directly on the Library of Alexandria and other great libraries of earlier pagan times began to be founded all across the Greek-speaking eastern part of the empire. Among the largest and most prominent of these libraries was the Theological Library of Caesarea Maritima, the Library of, Jerus- the Library of Jerusalem, and the Christian library in Alexandria. So that's three libraries. These libraries held both pagan and Christian writings side by side, and Christian scholars applied the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the same philosophical techniques that the scholars of the library of Alexandria had used for analyzing the Greek classics. Nonetheless, the study of pagan authors remained secondary to the study of the Christian scriptures until the Renaissance. Ironically, the survival of ancient texts owes nothing to the great library's antiquity and instead owes everything to the fact that they were exhaustively copied and recopied, at first by professional scribes during the Roman period onto papyrus and later by monks during the Middle Ages onto parchment. And that is a brief, very <laughs> brief history of the Library of Alexandria. I
1: enjoyed that. That was good.
2: Thank you. It's one of the great wonders. <laughs> I bet it would have looked so cool. Too. Yeah.
1: I wish that they would rebuild it. I
2: know. You know how many visitors they get if they did
1: that? Uh, if you're looking for a, a startup in Alexandria, that's uh, something that Let's I would invest get some invest bricks and in. mortar and build yeah.
2: your library. <laughs> but, we'll, yeah.
1: we'll make that the headquarters of Absinthe Activism Arts. Let's do it. Yeah.
2: Let's That'd be it. awesome.
1: Um, <clears throat> I think we're going to get out of here now. Mm-hmm. Um as always, you can find us on uh, the web at absintheactivismarts.wordpress.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, my books, uh, In the Shadows of My Mind and Red Hats and Black Masks. Both are available from Amazon um, or from the publisher sites um, in ebook and paperback form. Uh, i've got some free short stories up we've got music from chet osman and joshua paul brooks we've got some uh, artwork from katie she is open for commissions um if you're a uh, a local local activist slash artist and you want to get involved please feel free to send us an email or facebook message or tweet tweet uh tweet at us or whatever um we are on facebook at absinthe activism arts we are on twitter at absinthe act arts uh i am on the fediverse at awm rights on um diaspora and on mastodon although my mastodon instance has been down for a week because of the uh heat wave in paris Mm -hmm. so it's not really reliable to try to reach out to me there um (laughs) fucking global warming um I'm also on Instagram at AWM rights if you want to see cute pictures of Mercury. Mm-hmm. Um, we are on Patreon at Absinthexismarts.
2: <laughs> Question <mark>. <laughs> <laughs> Uh
1: I also set up a coffee for us if you want to give us a one-time payment uh, to help us make better stuff. Um, is that everything?
2: Sounds great to me. Cool.
1: In that case, we are going to get out of here. Uh, We love you all. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.
0: Mortar shells have deafened. My ears, but the ringing has lessened. The dreams I've dreamed, they've threatened. My sanity at your presence is a blessing. For you make me forget the times tragedy and I had met and the nights I'd awakened in sweat. It seems the years before you were my greatest debt. Honey, darling, look above The moon fits the clouds like a glove Honey, darling, my love Sometimes I fish the sky for what I'm thinking of Cause my tongue stays tied and knots This feeling inside, can I ride it to the top? My hands have closed the gates. Now we're inside, let's love and leave it up to fate.